0: Hello and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. I hope you were all doing well at this time. I'm so delighted to say that today we will be speaking with acclaimed artist Julie Meritu. But before we start, I'm so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri Jewellery, a collection inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, with each piece corresponding to one of the poet's 100 poems. You can visit their wonderful work at www.alighieri.co.uk. And just for our listeners, they are offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. Each week, their founder, Rosh Matani, will be giving us an insight into Alighieri, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Great Women Artists listeners. For all of you based in London, we wanted to let you know that Alighieri has just installed a mini installation in Selfridges Accessories Hall, which is full of antique sculptures and homeware and layers and layers of gold jewellery, feel free to go down and check it out. And for everyone else in the world, don't forget that Alighieri is offering 10% off all of our modern heirlooms with the code TGWA on alighieri.co.uk. Hello everyone, and welcome to The Great Women Artist Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the greatest artists of our time, the inimitable Julie Meritu. Revolutionising abstract painting for the 21st century, filled with frenzied vortexes and orderly and disorderly lines, Meritou is acclaimed for her all-encompassing, large-scale, gestural paintings built up through layers of acrylic paint and overlaid with frenetic mark-making. Referencing our history from the old masters, the dynamism of the Italian futurists, the enveloping scale of abstract expressionism and past civilizations, while addressing the most immediate conditions of our contemporary moment, including migration, revolution, climate change, global capitalism, and technology, Meritu's points of departure are architecture, the city, and people, particularly the densely populated urban environments of the 21st century. Working on a colossal scale, with intricate details and pockets of information when witnessed up close, Step Back and Meritu's paintings enable you to survey a world from afar. Erupting with colour, line, energy and movement, they evoke histories both evolving and collapsing, much like the conflictingly progressive yet backward world we find ourselves in today. Born in Ethiopia and from a young age raised in the US, where she lives and works today, Meritu studied at the Kalamazoo College in Michigan, followed by RISD. An artist in residence at the esteemed Studio Museum in Harlem in the early 2000s, Meritou has since gone on to exhibit extensively around the world, from solo exhibitions at the Louisiana in Copenhagen, to the Guggenheim in New York City, to numerously participating in biennales all over the globe, from Venice to Sydney to Istanbul. She is a recipient of the American Art Award from the Whitney Museum of Art, the prestigious MacArthur Fellows Award, and has been awarded the US Department of State Medal of Arts, award. But the reason why we are speaking today is because Meritu is currently the subject of a major touring retrospective of her work from the last 25 years. Co-curated by esteemed curators Christine Wykim with Rogeco Hockley, it is currently on view at the Whitney Museum of American Art, previously at LACMA, the High Museum, Atlanta, Georgia, and will go on to the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis, and unsurprisingly has been met with astonishing reviews. Julie Meritu, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Great. Thank
1: you. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honour to speak to you. So I have essentially grown up with your work and never have they failed to just fill me with awe. I specifically remember being enraptured by one of your mogama series paintings at the new Tate building in 2016. And like I mentioned in the introduction, they just elicit such intense and varied responses, whether it be your Stadia series to your murals, because standing up close, you are able to see these worlds within worlds, whether that be the architectural renderings, gestural marks, swathes of color in small doses but from far away you just become overwhelmed with the momentous mass of it all the dynamism of these gestures just start to open up and reveal themselves they are such experiences so I just love to start off by asking you how do you want people to feel when they are confronted with your work
1: just like you described (laughs) (laughs) I'm playing good
0: (laughs) Um, no, I think part of what
1: I'm really interested in and have become more and more interested in as I've been working is that type of time-based experience that one can have in front of a painting. And the amount of different details that that add up to that type of a bigger picture experience. So that when you go closer to the paintings, you have these very different types of intimate experiences that shift. That it's almost cinematic that shift through the painting as you travel through it. But when you're experiencing one Of the larger paintings, especially one of the larger paintings that were from the earlier works that had a lot of the architectural drawing and have a very different tenor to them, they've become this kind of overwhelming type of experience where you're embedded in it however you look at it because of the scale. And yeah, I, I think that part of that relates to many ways of understanding or thinking through world building and how through this moment or through modernity, we've been so kind of informed to break things down into sections. Like architecture is its own project. Painting is its own project in a way. And then you have this kind of breakdown of fields, you know. And I think a lot of the ways that worlds were built and modernities emerged through the world were actually things were much more entangled. And as a close colleague, Lawrence Trois always says, You'd have architects that would work with an astrologer, that you had to think about how you oriented architecture within the context and culture of place, that these weren't these kind of separate fields that existed. And I think that like somehow how we experience visual language, how we participate in what can be an abstract kind of image an experience, something that you can't necessarily define with language, can exist in these ways where it's about this synthesis or this kind of multitude of information that comes together to create this other type of physical, uh, visceral experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting how Adina Pendel recently said when she was working at MoMA in the 60s, how everything was just combined and now everything's separate. It's fascinating that that's a kind of feat of modernity. What is it about working on a large scale that you are attracted to?
1: It's took a question. I mean, my earliest work were really small, and
0: they're included in this
1: survey. But as I started to really investigate the mark, I think the size of the body and that experience that you could have many types of experience within, many points of view within a picture, that there was a multi-perspectival kind of experience in viewing that, that one couldn't leave with one resolution in a way that those contradictions are inherent in the experience of trying to make sense of this image but that it's not about making sense of an image it's more the experience becomes more about what happens viscerally to each person and in that there becomes this almost collective experiencing of something through that and i think that happens with all forms of art but that's something that i think becomes very profound is is how do we collectively experience works and how do they resonate differently with each of us in a very personal way but then also there becomes this kind of collective understanding of something. And that to me is super interesting, especially if it can be from this multi-perspectival place where there isn't a form of resolution or knowingness. It's, it's more about maybe an unknowing that is kind of suggested and experienced.
0: Yeah, I love the idea that you know all these different people with all these different experiences in their life come to your work and they almost reflect the work in such an interesting way
1: yeah like architecture itself does that right like in its structure Mm, yeah like that language we all have very different experiences with place but that's a language that we all negotiate and have had to our
0: whole lives yeah absolutely and the sort of histories of architecture as well especially somewhere like London where everything is just so Mm. diverse
1: yeah and London is a really wonderful city to explore in that way or to experience because it goes back. You know, New York is, there's a limit of time to that. London (laughs) has this very different sense of time and the manifestation of power, the manifestation of what those different types of architectural language, how that exists and and what that suggests to your experience in mimicking that in the painting also offers a very different point of departure. But a new work is less involved with architecture. It does something else within the abstraction to suggest that those types of spaces either way.
0: Yeah, I see your work kind of ultimately about people. I mean, I love this quote from Christine Y. Kim, who co-curated your Whitney show, and I know who you've been working with for decades now. And she says, the absence of bodies, but the presence of humanity on pause resonates in these paintings in mysterious and intense ways. Why are you drawn to working in a way that diminishes figuration and is ultimately abstract, yet preserves this idea of humanity, people, lost histories in your work?
1: That question brings up, I think, two different points of thought. First, I think one of the ways that I'm always working, or not for me, is how do I locate myself in making? The insistence and desire to make and the persistence of making, and then how does one find their place in that? And for me, it has been this kind of taking apart and trying to make sense of whatever the world is that I'm in and my place in that. So that's a very social project in that way, or in my effort to understand that, as well as being immersed in the visual project of that. And then we are immersed in this visual language around us completely. I was watching that film Blow Up for the first time last night. And, (laughs) you know, just, just thinking of it right now because of the protagonist's fascination with all forms of visuality, from the propeller to these ancient sculptures. And we live and work in a language that has enchanted us and has also challenged us. And there's this constant place of trying to find one's space in that, but there's also the breakdown between abstraction and figuration, because I think that that's almost also one of those creative binaries through modernism, that there's either one or the other, and that many times, through abstraction, aspects of figuration are, like, suggested. And same thing with paintings, figurative painting, that feel really abstract and can go to these places of that space. So I think there is this kind of place where they inform each other, and they are intertwined in a way. And we, as beings are immersed in trying to always find images of ourselves inside of whatever we look at. We've just wired that way in our brains. And so... That's something that I more and more keep kind of trying to, to interrogate. Really, what is that space? And playing right in between it sometimes.
0: But I love the artists like you. And I guess Bridget Riley does this to an extent as well with her abstraction. You know, actually, if you really think about the colour that years ago, there was some fantastic exhibition at the National Gallery, which paired Bridget Riley with Tintoretto and Titian. And actually making you see those sort of abstract sections in old master works when actually exactly. you don't necessarily see them immediately.
1: I wish I saw that show. That is one of my like fascinations and desire of when I'm looking at these old masters is what is so compelling is how they're structured abstractly. Poussin yeah. is another amazing abstractionist, or Veronese and The Wedding of Kana yeah. is one of the great abstract yeah. paintings of our time, in a way, the <laughs> past 500 years. And so for me, that's always been something that I've been really fascinated by. Caravaggio as well, and the kind of structures. But with Bridget Riley, I'm sure that was amazing. Is there a cat- There must be a catalog for that. I need to find it.
0: I'm sure, I'm sure. (laughs) Where was it? It was at the National Gallery. So it was actually situated her works in that old space as well. So you get that, you know, that sort of dichotomy of old and richness and newness and everything just kind of happening in that space. Amazing.
1: (laughs) Wow. I missed out. (laughs)
0: I'd like to see your work at the National Gallery. That would be astonishing. (laughs) But I mean, what's fascinating, you know, you bring this idea up that all these sort of different elements, in a way your work for me almost seems quite theatrical as well. It's almost like this play, there are so many different characters, yet you work in this two-dimensional surface. Why do you work on a flat surface in a two-dimensional space?
1: I think that persistence has been, it's the way that I'm most able to,
0: understand and generate
1: work. It's really like through the the most simple act of drawing, it's a place that I can go to kind of evolve these other dynamics. It's come up a lot, and, and I did one stage for an opera where it ended up being just about painting again. I mean, it was really about it was <laughs> one drop for each opera, but it had three different spaces. Wow. The painting itself could either be the scrim, could be the flat painting, and the space of where this activity took place but the activity could take place in front of the painting or in the interior of the painting. It was one or the other. And so you only had that space of the interiority of the painting and the exterior, like the painting as a backdrop, those two options. And so it became this really different conceptual way to think around space in painting. But again, there's a logic to working this way that doesn't translate for me, and I haven't found a way to translate it into another form of material.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I must congratulate you on the Whitney exhibition. I'm honestly just devastated not to be able to be there. But I mean, how does it feel to see all these works in this space and in the town of where you live?
1: Well, I mean, it's profoundly moving and humbling. Like I feel that <laughs> it's a town. I, I mean, the Whitney's always been important to me as a, as a museum, not only because of the biennials and its presence and and how it's been present in contemporary art. But when I first moved to the city, I moved to the city in 1992 right out of college and the 1993 biennial was the next year. And it was such a landmark exhibition. And it became so formative about what could be possible and really, convinced me of making and thinking in a different way and taught me a lot. I didn't grow up with those kinds of experiences where I, in the Midwest, you didn't have those kind of contemporary art institutions. Now you do, but when I was growing up, they didn't exist. Now you have MOCAD in Detroit and the MCA in Chicago, along with many others, like in my own hometown, East Lansing, Michigan, there's a broad Zaha Hadid art museum for contemporary art. That didn't exist, nothing like that. It's a very different world. Yeah. yeah. And so I think coming to New York and going to the Whitney, experiencing the Whitney, and then eventually the new museum, it offered this very different kind of way to imagine participating within the larger narrative of contemporary art. So it's amazing to have this show come back here. It's really moving. And at LACMA, we had the show divided onto two different floors because of the scale of the works and the kind of galleries that were there. And having it here at the Whitney all on one floor, it was also at the high all on one floor, but because of COVID, I wasn't able to go there. So this is the first time I'm seeing all of the work in one big space where there are very intimate spaces between the different cycles of work and different phases, but there are these great vistas between them. So you can look at three different cycles of work in conversation, which I've never been able to see in that way. And that's been really instructive and interesting. And Really thrilling.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. But I'd love to go back to your beginnings and your beginnings with art. You were born in Addis Ababa in 1917 to an Ethiopian father, a professor of economic geography, an American mother who was a Montessori educator. I mean, what was your upbringing like and was art something that you were always interested in?
1: So I see my parents and that generation as being like the modernists, like Montessori is a very modernist (laughs) way of thinking around education. And and I think my father and mother, both is kind of the civil rights people participating in this kind of idea of a new Pan-African moment of liberation on the continent, but in the tenor of the world, this kind of decolonial moment. And so they were visionary as their generation was contributed to that visionary imaginary of a different type of possibility and world building at that time. So I feel like that is the energy that raised me and that I was really informed by. Amazing. It was what Addis Ababa was at the time. I mean, it ended up being co-opted by the Cold War and the authoritarian regime that followed after the revolution. But there was a very different drive to our early childhood there. And that kind of international modernism that informed so much of that time. So I feel like that is a big formative part of my experience and the reason that I'm so interested in that language. And then we moved to East Lansing, Michigan, which is also weirdly connected to the international world because it's a land-grant university created to really be able to offer the general population, especially agriculturalists and and farmers, a college education, but also to really develop our agriculture and what is possible in that. And that's the reason there was a real strong relationship with the continent of Africa. And so you had this very international community there at the same time that you had this almost utopian desire of why a university existed. And strangely, the campus was very built in beautifully modern language of that moment. So I feel like all of that was this context I was growing up in, while it was also the Midwest of the United States. And it was very much Midwestern Michigan during the 1980s. And so you had this very intense reactionaryism. to, you had, I think, in the UK with Thatcherism, but here in the US with yeah. Reaganism, that we really was a reaction to the big gains of the civil rights moment and to the gains of what our parents' generation, what I felt like what they were inventing, being a biracial couple a year after anti-miscegenation laws were outlawed. And it was a very intense time to live. And I think right now you see a very different shift back towards other ways of kind of imagining futures during this pandemic, but also
0: yeah.
1: because of the crazy neo-liberalization that took place in this country, but also you see the failures of that that have been really exposed because of the pandemic. So it's, you know, I think all of that are what really formed me and informed me. And they've always were very supportive of me as a creator and as a maker and, and wanting to be an artist.
0: Yeah and so do you think that when you were a teenager were you actively seeking out art I mean was there anything that had a lasting impression on you and your youth
1: for sure we would go regularly to Detroit um, my father had to get his naturalization papers and so we would go to Detroit regularly for that and for, to experience culture and my family would go to the Detroit Art Institute and are paintings there that moved me I mean there was the Diego Rivera murals which were just profound yeah. and stunning and kind of immense and and part of like this muscular kind of understanding of Detroit. Detroit was a place that my st- father actually studied quite a bit because of the kind of history of white flight and urbanization in that city. And then also we would go to Chicago. And so for me, it was like the DIA, Diego Rivera, Whistler, or other modernists. And then you'd go to... Chicago, and it was all young artists, the Impressionists. And, like, it was, they're yeah. incredible <laughs> impressionist and being blown yeah. away by that. And, and then in my hometown, there was a small university museum. And for some reason, they had some amazing Morris Lewis paintings that were usually always oh, on wow. display, And so those were kind of like, yeah, these touchstones for me, like these, these drip paintings, drip <laughs> Morris, you know, on raw canvas. Yeah. So those were like my earliest childhood memories. is what I can recall as being very kind of magical to me at that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it kind of explains the amalgamation of your work and the amalgamation of references. This is kind of melting pot of just, I don't know, 500 years worth of history. In the early 1990s, you graduated from Kalamazoo College in Michigan and for a year studied abroad in Senegal. I've seen this fantastic picture of you. I think it's in W Magazine. You've got like bleached white hair and you are painting uh, like a giant <laughs> portrait. How was your experience studying here and what were you exploring at this time?
1: Okay. So that goes back again to this idea of really outside of magazines or art publications. And back in the late 80s and early 90s, publications were very different. It was almost like you needed to be in the culture of contemporary art to really understand somewhat of what was taking place in those publications, because they're coming out of the urban centers where contemporary art really is vital. And I remember being very moved by some, a piece I read in an article about Adrian Piper, but not really fully oh, understanding wow. that. And the university I went to while there was a very strong art history uh, department and there were some great artists who were teaching there, it wasn't connected to what was happening in the larger contemporary art scene in New York or LA. It was a very different provincial dynamic. And so while those teachers were so important to me and so fundamental to my learning and to my passion about making, it was in a way a very traditional form of arts education. And so, I think that I was just exploring ways of trying to make sense of myself. And as a lot of young artists, I think it's a project of making what you think is a good work of art, which is a lot of mimicking other arts and works of art. So it's really, or forms of making, but in the end, they're very derivative. There isn't something else happening. And even the ways of thinking around contemporary art practice were really something that I, that blew me away. It was like a revolution when I came to New York and how to rethink that. I mean, there were some moments when I was in, Michigan that I saw that. And then same with uh, being in Senegal. Again, I think it was the social side and the University of Cheikh Ante Jop and being immersed in that was more about what I was learning history. It was the first Gulf War the, the city of Senegal, the kind of history of Senghor and negritude and really other things that were very formative and really important to me. I worked with a bunch of batik artists and learned how to make dyes and do. And so it was more wow. about just being a young artist and exploring yeah. ways to make and ways of building with Adobe, things like that. I was basically mining. How does one even do this? And you're really, at that time, it was just learning technique in a way and technical kinds of education
0: yeah absolutely and so one of your earliest works in the whitney show and a very early work from your oeuvre is migration direction map large from 1996 i'm fascinated by your interest in the map what attracted you to using this motif to kind of ground your work when did that you kind of have that light bulb moment about wanting to explore the map because this is such a jump from these portraits you're making essentially
1: well, there was a big jump in between those. After these portraits that I was doing in school, I was working in New York for a few years, three years or something to, to go to graduate school. And and it was there that I was just playing with abstraction. And I was making these kind of mucky, big, huge, colorful, like oil paintings that were just full of gesture, but not really understanding But So my project in school when I first started was with the encouragement of a really great teacher, Michael Young, was to really take apart the paintings and really take apart the way I was thinking about making. So it was in that process of doing one gesture on a piece of paper at a time and then like hanging that on the wall and doing another gesture and hanging that and doing another gesture. And then eventually that first semester, I felt completely lost and I had no sense of what, you know, everything that I understood about what I was trying to do. It was turned upside down. and. It was kind of serendipitous how I moved into this language of map making. I was traveling, and because I was traveling, I was working with very small pens, and I was working in a sketchbook. And I was also doing an etching project in Mexico. It was like a six-week course, and I was working very with these with these etching needles on plates and drawing. And I started to work with these very small marks, and the drawings started to look like maps. And oh, that's wow. when I became interested in trying to make sense of what was happening with the drawing so it was the reduction of the gesture the gesture by itself completely removed had no meaning whatsoever it was just a gesture like any it was a it was almost like a mimic of of any other gesture right but when i reduced that gesture to one type of mark with many other marks repeating it it all of a sudden started to take on a different kind of meaning in the group and that became conceptually just interesting to me and I started to play around with these drawings that started to look like little cities and clusters of cities. And then I became interested in the mapping side because that happened so intuitively and so much by chance that I realized that intuitive chance way of working, which was always something that I had relied on. I started to work that way and then try to make sense of that. And so then I started to play in this very absurd way to play with the map and other Cartesian ways of trying to make sense of things. Very Montessorian in a way. (laughs) To look at all of these Like what was happening in the studio, and have that be a very different process. So it was a way to just think through these new drawings that I started making, which seemed much more potent and interesting to me than any other work I had made beforehand. And these drawings were small, four inches by six inches, eight inches by 12 inches. You know, they were very small drawings. And they're in the first gallery at the Whitney now, those early works.
0: Yeah, it must just be incredible to see that in the exhibition and have that as a starting point and then have this played out and developed in so many different ways and avenues. But also in this section of the exhibition, you have included untitled brackets, yellow with ellipsis, another play on the map motif. I've read that this was your first attempt to collapse the map and the drawing in one space. I mean, what did you want to achieve from this?
1: It was just, again, another experiment. And I think like a lot of that work, the way I continued to evolve the work was to ask these, especially in those early years, was to try to limit... The amount that I was working with because I was really conscientious of making one step at a time. So first I started to use the map and map these drawings to try and say what was going on in this. So one was a migration map of what was happening with the characters or the marks in the drawing. And then those maps started to inform how I could, I started to combine them with the drawing. Why are they separate pieces? And and then I started to create this paint to be able to work on a larger scale and to be able to embed these within one another. These maps and the drawings and these worlds could create their own tectonics in a way and their own geology, their own kind of substrata of all these different narratives. And so that's kind of was just an experiment to play with.
0: How could that happen?
1: And then it was really try to do it as freely as possible
0: yeah amazing so from the 2000s your work began to to me you know embrace the kind of monumental Scale of history painting with your loose interrelated narratives across completely different bodies of work. To me, your work seems like the greatest example of the expansion of globalization in the 2000s technologically, socially, digitally, and the interconnectedness and sort of transitory speed of it all. How did you come to develop this initial language? And were you specifically reacting to the world around you? I mean, this was the sort of cusp of the millennium.
1: (laughs) It's interesting because, you know, that was a really kind of unique. time. And I think there were so many great artists doing these kind of amazing global projects. You know, I'm thinking of Tacita Dean's project where she went around the world and filmed in all these different time zones and thinking of different kinds of biennials like uh, Okwio Enzor's biennial in South Africa that really kind of tried to expand the language of what could happen in terms of participating artists who are thinking around these um, issues. There's so many different artists that were thinking through that time where we really were in a kind of very expanded, optimistic moment of globalization and of of what was possible with the web. And I think in the US, you really had a very palpable feeling of that kind of global optimism and global engagement and this really kind of optimistic economic fervor around that. And I don't know, for me, I was trying to make paintings that were getting more and more complex, through these steps and through layering all these other forms of language together. So once I started to layer architectural language into the drawings, the drawings would get more complex. And then once I was able to layer architectural drawing, I could layer five thousand years in one painting if I if we want. <laughs> and so there were it was just yeah. this experimental aspect but I do think that the time and that moment when I look back on those paintings they carry that kind of you know tintillating what do you call it kind of um, euphoric optimism energy
0: and dynamism yeah
1: and that kind of euphoric optimism of that time of it that as emerging young artists there was this more international group of artists getting some kind of space in the New York City scene and that was a newer development and felt very much that way and There was an excitement around that, and my gallery that I started to show with in New York was um, the project, which was started by a gallerist named Christian Hay. He was, I think, one of the first Black dealers in that contemporary scene in the city at the time. There had been, of course, other Black dealers in the past, but really, like, this gallery that started in Harlem, there was this amazing energy around that and what could be possible. And so... I think that was the moment that I was also working and this new work was emerging and there is that interconnected energy there. But when I look at those paintings now, it's interesting because I think, I, I wonder, they could have even been more, <laughs> like more, they, they could have held, I don't know, they, they, they hold that time in, in such a particular way, but there's a very deep earnest kind of about them that's interesting to, to notice. Or this optimistic desire that feels so um, naive in way it is in those paintings. So it's interesting to, to think about, as well as the kind of acceptance of these moments of dystopia in them, like bombing Babylon, like early titles that I, th- I think about. I, it was just like, where was I? Like, where was I? Who was the person yeah. who made that stuff? It's interesting to see that in the show right now.
0: But that's fantastic. I'm thinking of something like Retopistics, a renegade excavation from 2001, which I would love, love, love to see in real life. Do you kind of intend, I mean, this is just this kind of mass of just interconnectedness and just kind of speed in front of you. It's very much like the Italian futurists, which is interesting to think that they were working on the cusp of the, you know, that maybe there's something about working on the cusp of a century that you kind of embrace the new, I guess. Do you intend for there to be kind of narratives within these paintings?
1: Yeah, at that time I was really thinking about that, and I was conflating all the different forms of airport terminal maps and train station, like subway terminals, and creating this kind of like imagined folded up interconnected space. And I was thinking about the Situationists. I was thinking about you know the Futurists. I was thinking about the Suprematists and all these various types of utopian desires, you know, different types of art movements that we're trying to in some way deal with a visual for and think around these kind of utopian perspectives. But I think that that was part of the contradiction being asked in these paintings, because the marks that were then participating in that are being dwarfed by that or digesting, consuming and challenging that. So there was this constant interplay between all of that at the same time. So I think for me, I was really looking at those artists or, you know, thinking about Constance drawings of these foldable cities and places of play and places of possibility. But rather than doing that from plants and the cities I experienced or airport plants that I had collected and scanned and drew over an illustrator and collapsed all of that into the painting to create this kind of complex space.
0: Yeah it feels quite kind of Buckminster Fuller-esque and the kind of like geodesic domes and everything. I mean
1: yeah <laughs> I would trace a ruin from the Oracle Adelphi or trace the Roman Amphitheatre in Arles to like be able to push all of, and then go right from that all the way to like the geodesic dome or the unbuilt kind of imaginary buildings that at the time were Zaha yes. Hadid drawings. You know, those. There's a lot more that has been built of her work since then, but there was a lot of her drawings early on that were just these ideas that were paintings and drawings. And I pulled from those. I was a child also of hip hop. You know, I'm first generation person who grew up like that was really in a, a part of like my teenage years and early teenage years and and that the whole sampling remixing cutting and mixing that way of thinking of making also very much informed those paintings so you could flatten the malevich square and then you know a yeah. futurist gesture with these other structures and these other types of dreams and possibilities
0: That's such a brilliant way of looking at it. And I mean, using a sort of architectural rendering as the kind of, I guess, ground for your work, I mean, what do you see as the kind of potential for using this framework?
1: (laughs) So for me, it was a real, again, it was a serendipitous moment in the studio where I had been had these books of a Mies van der Rohe building that was the site of the residency program we, I was at in Houston, of the museum there. And I had these um, images of these buildings and other buildings. And I just photocopied one and put it under my projector and projected it on the painting that I had been working on that had this entire map of drawings and became immediately like really interesting to me to think about the map of these characters. All of a sudden there was a social context, social, political, economic, every, there was this context and there was a a desire embedded in that building. There was the the language of power, the language of infrastructure, that was a way to, to bridge and to kind of link that into a metaphoric language of power and authority. And how that has changed and the desires of that over the time. So at the beginning, I wasn't really, you know, not didn't understand, but wasn't really thinking about ever using architecture in the work. And it really came through that by chance encounter and playfulness in the studio.
0: Um, I'm fascinated I mean at this time I guess in the early 2000s you had moved to New York City and of course you were the artist in residence of the Studio Museum do you think moving here and being here and surrounded by such a built-up urban city affected your work as well I'm, I'm fascinated about the kind of use of place in your work
1: yeah I mean I had gone to school from New York I had been living there waiting tables and, and painting and then was in then in Providence Rhode Island studying and then Always had a place in New York during that time. Went to Houston, which was a very different kind of sprawling city and a really fascinating kind of place. And I was always interested in the city, having not grown up in a major city. But it was something that my father always studied. And so we always talked about. And when we would go to Detroit and Chicago, we were living through this time where you were seeing the kind of decimation of these cities or the result of the decimation of these cities from the 70s and from white flight that took place in that moment after the late 60s. And so that engagement was something that we always just talked about and I was always immersed in that. So my experience in New York and the kind of vitality and what was possible in terms of being queer, being like a creative person, being able to invent oneself a different way and and the emergence of kind of identity politics post AIDS and what was really happening in the city in that way and and what, what new could be possible. There was this kind of incredible vitality and excitement in that. So yeah, I mean, the city I think was always really interesting to me for that, for its cacophony in that way, and for the cacophony of experience that one could have, like, and the kind of incredible freedom one could have in that space.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And then in the early sort of two thousand and four, you created your three part Stadia series, which is one of my absolute favorite works of mm-hmm. yours. I mean, I'm fascinated by this framework of stadiums. You've spoken about this kind of utopian, you know, imagined project. They do feel like this incredible world. I'm fascinated because you made these stadium series. And if anyone's listening, please look them up, uh, these three works. And um, how has global politics informed your work? Because I find it interesting that you made stadia at a time, you know, this was the Iraq war, but also the kind of imminence of the Olympic games in Greece. Yes.
1: yes. So for me, that really was the context. Like, so I had been working with these paintings and it was the first time, you know, working with this language. I'd done a, a lot, some large paintings for the show at the Walker Art Center. and I was invited to participate in the Carnegie International. And when I was invited for that, it was really at the dawn of the Iraq war was in 2003. It was when I had just completed the works for the Walker. And I was really blown away by the kind of nationalist reactionary fervor after 9-11 by the Bush administration in this country. And that kind of global optimism that we had experienced in New York and in the world, came to an abrupt end right after the Twin Towers fell. And that was palpable around the world, but anyone who experienced that knew that. And immediately there became a very different type of global engagement at that moment. And who was the other that was the other to fear was anyone of Muslim descent. And there was this very kind of incredible reactionary dangerous moment we were living in. It changed on it like by a switch, it felt like. And to experience the kind of immense shift through that and then to the build-up to the war, the build-up to the war on lies, the build-up to the war, you felt the kind of machinations, the propaganda machine and the effort of that in the build-up for that war. And... That was reminiscent to some of the failures, you know, now after having lived through the Trump administration, we see that on a very different level. But there was a kind of little move towards that very scary kind of authoritarian kind of gesture. But this aspect of going to invade another country that had nothing to do with the situation that on fabricated intelligence to like dupe a public to, to engage into and, and you know and they think the UK and Blair are, are also you know were the partners of Bush in this definitely and then as citizens this was our leadership we were responsible for this as much as we were opposed to it and so for me I was like being asked to participate in this international we had the kind of fervor around the shock and awe year the year of that war that time that we were just going to blast the hell out of of our collective humanity you know Baghdad and and yeah. Iraq and and devastate this place at the same time that the world was gearing up for these Olympic Games in Athens, and yeah. back at the source of the Olympics, in a very different kind of almost nostalgic sense of a global kind of engagement, social engagement. And you know, for me, I was thinking about all of that and thinking about the kind of stage of spectacle and propaganda and how they participate. They're very much. In hand with each other, and then, and we couldn't understand then how little mediated the world was compared to now. But it felt enormously spectacular and mediated, and then and the way the media participated in the construction of the narrative and the need for this war, all of that, and then at the same time, the immense kind of contradiction with the Olympic Games happening. So, both of those, I, I thought just to focus on the stadium as this site and then interrogate the stadium as this site of, and all the different uses that the stadium has built. But the kind of collective fervor that can happen in a stadium, the collective kind of what can happen to the crowd, and the kind of thinking about Kennedy and the power of the crowd, and thinking about whether it was Allende Stadium being used as prisons, whether it was stadiums that were being used in Afghanistan as sites of execution. You had sites that were being used as prisons. You had huge stadiums where you had, the crowds went so insane that you had mass stampedes and people were killed through these stampedes. But there was this kind of immense historic narratives that have happened in different stadiums that have participated in this fervor and the the idea of the crowd and who has control. And I was really interested in playing with all of that. And so these three paintings play with that and look at the stadium from different points of view and from different places. And they use the language of, the flags and the nationalist kind of desire between competition and the play around the the Olympics coming back to Athens in the summer games and this war. And I was really thinking about those two happening at the same time. And when or the USSR had invaded Afghanistan, we boycotted those games. And I use that logo as the center point of departure for these paintings as an interesting contradiction of this time when the very same kind of gesture by the United States in Iraq was treated very different globally because of its place of power in that conversation with the United States playing this very kind of, in my view, illegal role in the world and participating in a very criminal way against humanity in my perspective.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating because during that time, it almost kind of became the norm for these criminal offences to happen. And then I guess what we've seen in the last 15 or so years is people in power, political power, actually just completely abusing that and committing despicable crimes. Yes. But the late, the mid to late 2000s you lived in Berlin briefly I mean this is interesting because you're creating work that was actually in reaction to the space am I right in thinking how did being situated in Berlin inform your work from perhaps somewhere that you're looking on a more kind of global scale to a more local scale?
1: Well being in Berlin I think was super illuminating and instructive because the scars of its past are everywhere right the second world war the cold war The First World War, all of that is evident and palpable wherever you go in Berlin. So the, the cold, you know, the kind of divided nature of what the city was, the East and the West, that's a constant negotiation in that city. And as in London, you can see in a way that you don't have that experience here in the United States, you see the evidence of the kind of decimation of parts of the city because of the architecture. Every corner where a bomb was dropped, you see the new buildings and buildings, that came around in the 50s and 60s, as opposed to from the late 1800s or early 20th centuries. So that was a new palpable kind of feeling to live in that context in the midst of the later years of the war. And it made me rethink what it means to be a citizen that is committing these atrocities when my country was doing that and living in this country that always felt in some way like very criminal to me because of its past with the Second World War. And So to me, it was this interesting way to think through that. Who is responsible? How does one take responsibility? And my paintings during that time, I worked on two different bodies of work. One being uh, the kind of arc of all the work before, uh, this kind of optimistic, other perspective that was happening with the colored paintings. And that became Mural, which is that enormous painting for Goldman Sachs that I did. But then at the same time, I was working on this commission for the Guggenheim exhibition. And those paintings were much more involved in kind of looking at the ruin and as a place of uh, being able to draw from and the gray space of the ruin. They became much more gray in color in the paintings, a lot less bright color. And really looking at what could emerge from within the erasure in the paintings and within the ruin. Like what was the dynamic, what could exist within that? Because something always does emerge. And so those were these paintings that explored that, like the architecture kind of failing and the fissures and the kind of breaks within that. And that became this really interesting space to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In 2012, your visual language shifted once again with this key series Mogama, which broke away from detailed architecture and spectacular kind of colored lines. This was obviously reacting to the contemporary event of the Egyptian revolution. I mean, how did you translate the energy and the history of this time onto canvas? Because I know that you visited Cairo in 2012 following the election of Morsi.
1: So that whole moment in 2011, the revolution in the early days of January in Egypt, Tunisia, the entire North African Arab Spring, the contagion of that throughout the world, it sparked protests from Rio to Zuccotti Park, Paris, London, they were everywhere. And it was really interesting, the kind of excitement and contagion of that moment, but it was also very clearly a liminal moment. And maybe for me, my interest was because I had grown up and our family left as a casualty of that form of revolutionary fervor and hope for something that became much worse. And the he- history of the Green Revolution in Iran gives you a different sense of that as well, of, the, of how something can be so co-opted and go so wrong. And when you think it can't get worse, it can actually, you see what can how something can be co-opted yeah. and become a different place. But I was super interested in that repeat, that kind of empowered excitement that can happen, that empowered it contagious excitement that can happen in the square, and that can happen in that moment of uprising. And I'd read this amazing piece by Nasser Rabat, who's an architectural historian at MIT in art form. This piece was called Circling the Square. And what I thought was so interesting was how he spoke about and wrote about all these different buildings around Tahrir Square but giving the architectural history to their specificity and their reason of being and how they came to create this kind of no place that became this plaza where this event happened. And what I was so interested with is how these buildings become these witness to this space, but how they're also, they are the kind of, in some way, metaphoric creation or existence of these systems of power. And all of those various histories from the Mamluk to the Islamic to the a modern brutalist building, they're all part of what informs and created those citizens that participated in this kind of uprising and demand of change. And so to me, that, that became an interesting way to think about when I was invited to participate in Documenta, I wanted to create these paintings that could then play with that idea, but to think about that on a global scale at every square that We've had these kinds of uprisings, and historic or otherwise. Tiananmen Square, Place de la Concorde, the Z- Zocalo in Mexico City, again, Zuccotti Park in New York, whatever these, the, the, all of these places, uh, Mezcal Square in Addis Ababa, that these will become these symbolic places, but the buildings in them, how could they collectively become this other place? So those were the buildings that were drawn into the Mogamas. The Mogamas were vertical paintings as opposed to kind of horizontal panoramic paintings. And yet the vertical paintings, when they are put side by side, become this panoramic vista. And the square is then reflective upside down on the top. All these buildings, you see these kind of reflections of them and becomes this very kind of subliminal experience of a place. They can't be surmounted, but that the marks kind of go just digest and consume and the marks create a very, very different dynamic in those places. So much so that the architecture almost dissipates to the grid. It's so consumed by the marks that they be- it becomes something else. And that really was almost the last moment of working with architectural drawing for me. Yeah. After that, I-, I felt like it really lost its important space in the work and that the marks became the primary, they, they became supreme in that painting and they became the interest.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I should add that these works are just overwhelmingly expressive and complex and just dazzling. But I mean, as you say, in 2012, your work took a turn whereby you began to manipulate news photographs and Photoshop and render them onto the canvas. And what the results are, are these almost abstract scapes. And One work that I think is particularly emotional and important is Conjured Parts, I, Ferguson from 2016, which was made in response to press images of uprising in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. And where you use this photographic image as the source of your work. I mean, what does the photographic image offer and kind of using this image as the basis of this work? I mean, what were your experiences making this work and what do you want the viewer to be aware of here? So to me... There were various ways that I moved into
1: that. First, I was working on these gray paintings called the Invisible Sun Paintings, or Invisible Sun Cycle, and these were paintings where the ground is gray. I was interested in that intermediate space that emerged from the Mogamas and from other paintings, like the gray paintings with the Guggenheim, where that in-between, what was happening in the gray space and what was happening within the drawing, how could the drawing then find this other form of liberation, like really liberating the, the drawing from the need of the architecture as a, any kind of parameter. it or any kind of location and then what could happen in that drawing what could happen in those paintings spatially but also what could be suggested and what could be the visceral experience and the marks really started to evolve and then I started to use airbrush and spray paint and they became somewhat photographic not photographic but they became to have these blurs and they started to really and then I was looking at some things that were happening in the studio and became interested in the blur through another kind of chance encounter in the studio with a blurred photograph being projected on the painting and became way more haunting an image than tracing that photograph. So I'd been using photographs to do all the tracings of the architectural drawings in all of the other paintings. But reducing it to one photograph as opposed to an amalgam of a hundred or three hundred or whatever and just blurring that, it was able to almost distill what I was kind of interested in in the haunting and kind of the ghost embedded in that photo whatever that brought up for me there was a reason the photo kind of stayed with me and those photos then started to become those blurred photos started to become the painting the point of departure in the painting and i wasn't so interested i mean at the beginning i gave a nod to where that photo came from so i with hundred parts i ferguson if i and ferguson are in parentheses it's really the location but in that it suggests that, that event Eventually, all of the blurred paintings, the last paintings in the show and the last the paintings I was, I've been working on recently, their titles are different. But Blurred Photo is informative in what it offers subliminally, but also experientially in that painting. And for me, it's the trying to make sense of something very complicated and horrific and visceral of a moment that feels like it's very hard to articulate. And how does one find liberation inside of that? How do we reinvent that? And what is the insistence? What is the persistence of what can be possible in these experiences in painting that became really the direction that these new paintings emerged from and the blurred photo, I think it's most important as how it informs the painting visually, but knowing the source is not as important. I mean, yeah. I'm happy to share the source with anyone who asks and we share them in the, in the information labels. But for me, it's more, as it was with the Mogama paintings or as it was with any of the earlier paintings, it's the visceral physical experience of the painting and what happens in that subjective experience. And, There can be many sources for the images, but the sources are of this moment, of this time. And to me, it's what happens within that blur, what happens within that haze, what happens within that unknowing, and what can be terrifying in that, but what can also be exhilarating and possible.
0: Absolutely. Julie, thank you so much for this interview. I've genuinely just been completely enlightened and just thank you for all the work. I wish that your exhibition was touring to the UK. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if there was a woman artist who was from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Wow. (laughs) There's so many. (laughs) You can have more than one. I
1: would like to meet the unknown artists who were immersed in painting and who have been painting, but who we don't, who whose names we don't know because of the realities of the world. Those are the women who I would love to talk to and meet. Uh, that's a hard question. I have to think about that. <laughs> There's, but, but yeah, I mean, I guess for me, it's the number of unknown painters and and many unrecognized women artists who will, we will still continue to find their work and, as works were made in the Renaissance and as paintings evolved and as people you know I love Ali Smith's book how to be both because yeah. of this kind of invention of a character but the realness of the kind of number of times women had to kind of invent themselves differently and and pretend to be men in order to be taken seriously I would love to speak with all of you know those are the women that I'm moved by and I would love to find and be able to talk to.
0: Amazing. Julie Merity, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to the 60th episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with the brilliant Julie Meritu. I am just in awe at Meritu's fantastic, important and deeply complex and vital work and urge you all to look it up. And for those in the New York area, please do not miss her incredible show at the Whitney Museum, which runs until the 8th of August 2021. As always, I have linked through to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Winnie Simon. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.